When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Sometimes needing new tyres can catch us by surprise. That's why tyre power gives you the power of zip pay and zip money. You can get what you need now, get back on the road safely and pay for it later. Terms and conditions apply. So visit tyrepower.com.au or call 13 21 91. Welcome to What Are You Doing Here? Thanks to AATC, Australasian Academy of Tennis Coaches, providing quality coach education across the globe. Courses delivered by industry leaders and tennis business owners. Learn locally. Coach globally. Internationally endorsed. Inquire and enrol at aatc.tennis. Hi everyone, welcome to What Are You Doing Here? A first serve series where we talk to people from the professional tennis tour. My name's Rowan Williams and I'm currently the coach of JP Smith and Luke Saville. I've worked on the tour for over 10 years and players I've coached include Dustin Brown, Alexi Popperin and John Millman. During this series, I'm going to be talking to people who I've met and know from my travels on tour. I sat down recently with Brad Stein at the ATP event in Houston. Brad is currently the coach of Tommy Ball, part-time commentator on Australian TV, and formerly the coach of Jim Courier. When we're in uh, Nur Sultan, Kazakhstan, you know, and you, your guy loses first round, you're like, what am I doing here? When, when was the last time you were in Nur Sultan? I did go to Nur Sultan. I think it was 2020, the first year they did the tournament. Oh, right after COVID? Yes. So it was pretty cold then, right? It was freezing. Do you remember the coldest you saw? Well, they actually said, like we talked to a number of people there, and they said it wasn't that cold yet. Okay. But that it gets you know, way, way, way colder, like down to like minus 50 degrees and stuff. And so we were 50, like, we're talking American degrees yeah, now, yeah, right? Yeah, American degrees. Yeah. So, sorry, that was, yeah. that was uh, Fahrenheit. But yeah, it was, it was still, I mean, there was snow on the ground. There was ice on the ground. It was, it was, yeah. it was freezing cold. Because there. I went for challenges in, I think it was about February, 2021. Okay. And we saw minus 30 in Celsius. So oh my sure. gosh. Yeah. So that in was Celsius. Yeah. That's cold. Yeah, so that's. I mean, I was checking every day because it's my record, and minus thirty three was the cold. Was the coldest. Yeah, that's, so, that's crazy. Yeah, cold. so nursal time. Yeah. But but to go back to your actual serious question. The actual question. What yeah. Am, what am I doing here? I'm a coach on the tour. I've been a coach on the tour for a long time now. It's uh, it's been my full time job. It's funny because people that don't understand what we do as coaches on the tour sometimes give you the impression when you say that you're a coach on the tour, they're like, you know, what else do you do? Or people ask me what I do and I say I'm a tennis coach and in the United States at least, people often say, oh, you coach at a high school? Yeah, high school or country club. Yeah, Yeah. or or they assume that you're a teaching pro at a club, you know, so the fact that we're coaching high-performance players and professional players is a little bit different gig. I've been lucky enough to be on the tour pretty much full-time, a few little breaks here and there, but pretty much full-time for, man, like a little over 30 years now. I did run my own little academy for a little while, and, uh, and I had a stint where I went and worked for the USTA, the United States Tennis Association, for about three and a half years or so. But even when I was with the USTA, I was still back 
back on the tour, primarily the Challenger tour at that time, but I was still kind of on the tour. And Tommy and I started in uh, 2019, just after the U.S. Open. Carry Challenger, right? Carry Challenger might have been the first week that we actually spent together. You were we, there. Start, we started working. I'd like to take credit for the fact that we were already in contact once he lost at U.S. Open qualifying that year. And, sure. And I gave him a, a list of things to start to think about, work on, change, add. I always remember because I gave him a list of 11 things to consider and he was playing the New Haven Challenger. New Haven, I was there, yep. And I didn't go to the event, but we mm. were communicating on a daily basis. And yeah, he, sure. And, and he won the tournament. I'm going to take some, whatever coaching credit you get for when a player wins a tournament, I'm, I'm taking that for New Haven. And a bonus too? No bonus. <laughs> no bonus. We actually, at that time, I was still officially coaching Kevin Anderson. Kevin had withdrawn from the U.S. Open and was having knee surgery and wasn't going to play for the remainder of the year. And that's when Tommy actually approached me knowing that mm-hmm. and just asked me if I would work with him through the end of that year, really, was right. the original plan. And then uh, he won New Haven, won Tiburon Challenger. Kerry, when you saw us, I think he made quarters or semis, lost to Michael Moe there. I remember to Michael Moe. But we were on a good run, and when he won Tiburon, he made top 100, which was the first yeah. time that he had made top 100. Tommy hasn't been in the top 100 for that long. But sure. that, that was the first time he'd ever been top 100. It was in 2019. As that year progressed, I went to uh, Stockholm with him at the end of the year. He played qualies there. We played a couple other events, and obviously things had gone quite well, and, and so he and his agent approached me and asked me if I would work with him on a more full-time basis, and I made the decision to switch from Kevin to Tommy. Felt like Kevin was going to probably not be healthy, because 2019 had been very difficult for Kevin. Yeah, We spent the first, like, I think four months or so of the year after Australia, he had an elbow issue that didn't allow him to play very much. The entire U.S. summer swing on hard court and up to the U.S. Open, I mean, he withdrew from every tournament there was because of his knee, ended up having knee surgery. And he was 34, but his body was a little bit beat up when you're six foot eight. That's uh, one of the things you deal with. And I think what people don't realize so much when you're in a job like ours as well, if you're not working, you're not really getting paid. Yeah, you're, yeah. <laughs> you're effectively on the same employment employment conditions as a consultant, right? Yeah, well, I haven't been smart enough. I don't know about you. I haven't been smart enough to really create a lot of other revenue streams, Yeah, you know, such as an academy or, or something else that I fall back on when and if I'm not on the tour. My primary gig through almost the entirety of my coaching on the tour has been working with one player generally. Yep. And like you said, I mean, it is, it, it can be a very volatile type situation if that player, for whatever reason, isn't having the results that he wants or or gets upset at you about whatever or in in a couple of cases I've had situations where the federation came in and offered a free coach to, sure. to a yep. younger player that I was working with yep. I had a player whose father was a former player on the tour okay Australian by the way okay um, and player or father and the father okay I mean the player was half Australian Taylor Dent and his dad Phil okay Dent. so when I worked with Taylor you know he had the best year of his career yep. up, up to that point and mm-hmm. Phil decided that he wanted to work with him and go back on tour that kind of put me out in the cold again and that was frustrating that was frustrating to be in that situation sure yeah, yeah. so so yeah it can be very volatile and, and, and yeah if, if you're a player for whatever reason whether he's injured or whether he's not wanting to work with you anymore you end up you know being unemployed for some period of yes time. yes been there yeah. been there been there done that i i, I yeah. feel like if you haven't been unemployed in this job you haven't really done the job yet how'd you get into coaching then my standard answer to that is that i'm too dumb to do anything else obviously you played some tennis before right yeah, but I wasn't I, I wasn't 
wasn't a particularly good player by any means, by any yep. standard means when you compare with professional tennis. Yep. I played collegiately. Mm-hmm. Um, I got into the game late. I, 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 was a, I was a young baseball player. Sure. Actually loved baseball. Okay. And, uh, and then I kind of gravitated toward tennis when I was about 14. I started taking some lessons from a teaching pro and working on technique and mechanics. And I actually, I think, played my very first tournament when I was like 15 I think playing 16 and unders okay very late for a lot of guys that being said I don't know I picked the game up I think relatively well and I ended up getting a a division one scholarship to a university in the United States not a big time school not like a top 10 school or anything like that but still played a pretty good schedule had an opportunity there to play you know against a lot of good players and I, I had some I had some decent individual wins right over the course of my own trying to play tennis yeah um, had a decent doubles ranking at one point in the United States, mm-hmm. but but you know all in all I, I wasn't a great player by any means. You sure, know? I think technically and mechanically, like I was an okay player, yeah, and I had an understanding of the game. And one of the things that drew me into coaching was a statement that was made by a coach that I had in college, who said that if you want to be a great player, you need to become a student of the game. And that really like resonated with me for whatever reason. You know, maybe because I had gotten to it so late, it created a scenario where I really did become a student of the game you know the the mechanics of the game and the tactics of the game were things that I was really interested in and again because I got into it so late maybe it just kind of absorbed me and I watched a ton of tennis you know whether it was on TV or any opportunity I had to go to tournaments and stuff like that so and and that ultimately led me to a position where a guy named Greg Patton, who was a collegiate coach at the time, but he was coaching our U.S. junior national team. Timing just somehow worked out for the fact that when he asked me to be his assistant coach during the summers with the with the USTA, that team at the time was made up of Jim Courier, Pete Sampras, Michael Chang, Todd Martin, Jeff Tarango, pretty much everybody that made the top 100 in the U.S., in yep. the 90s, except for Andre. Part he was of outside he, of yeah, it. Yeah, he right? was outside of it for a number of other reasons and stuff. But He was doing but, Nick's thing, right? He was, yeah, he, he was, was with pretty... IMG. It wasn't IMG then. It was the Boletari Academy. Yep. And he was working with Nick, and he was already playing pro events. So most of those other guys hadn't like made that adjustment to be playing pro events yet. But still a pretty golden era yeah, for, exactly. for U.S. men's exactly. tennis. Yeah, and, and it was funny because... You know, this guy, Greg Patton, who's a bit of a legend within collegiate tennis mm-hmm. in the U.S., but he basically had to talk me into taking this position as his assistant yeah. because I was still trying to play a little bit. I was I was going to Europe each uh, summer for three to four months. Club tennis? I was playing more money tournaments, really, yeah, in right. France. Like, anybody that knows the system, yeah. you can play these money tournaments in France. And you actually, like, there were a couple summers where I made halfway decent money. I mean, I had one summer. You could eat? I think, yeah, I think I made, like, 10 or 12 grand, like, during the summer or something. You know, which is like not terrible, and you're playing career. Yeah, we say career in inverted commas. Sounds, yeah, exactly. sounds pretty similar to mine. So yeah, like, yeah. And, and it was fun. I mean, all that stuff was super fun, and yeah. I actually played in those just in those tournaments in France. I played two or three guys that ended up becoming top hundred in the world. Um, I remember playing Jean Philippe Florian, who I think got to about fifty in the world. I played him when he was like seventeen or something. And sure. A few other guys like that, and it, and it was fun. It was really fun. So. Mm-hmm. I mean, really, that's kind of my playing background. You know, like I said, once Greg got me into that scenario working for the USTA, at that time, the USTA didn't have like a full-time structured program. We didn't have a training center, um, and that program was really a summer program. I worked during the summers then for the next like five or six, six or seven summers. How old are these guys? You've got all these guys that are about to be future 
yeah, professionals, they, great players, well, some that, champions. That team, that team was made up of guys that were from 15 or so to 18. Okay. So obviously the system was a little bit different then. We didn't have the same degree of interest in the ITFs. ITFs weren't as big an aspect of what was going on. You actually had each country had an allotment of players right. that were selected by their federation to represent them in playing the Grand Slams in the, okay. ju- in the juniors. All right. So a little different system and situation. Domestic yeah. competition gets pretty strong. Pretty it's big. still pretty strong anyway. It's huge. The system was like playing within the U.S. There was a, I think one of the reasons that we produced so many players during that time frame and prior to that, and maybe one of the reasons that we haven't as much um, since then is because there was this very healthy sense of competition amongst all the top American junior players. Yeah, and I think maybe people don't appreciate, especially that are outside of US or Europe, how much like a, almost like a mini pro tour the the US junior system is. You, you're away maybe two weeks out of every month, staying in a hotel, playing the tournament, and like doing almost like a full schedule. A lot of so many kids are homeschooled. The training's full time. So I, I think yeah, important for the listeners to know that one yeah, too. Yeah, especially now. Back then, man, everything was packed into the summer. You okay. Had, you had U.S. junior hard courts, U.S. junior clay courts. You had the nationals at Kalamazoo. Kalamazoo, yeah. Everyone, <laughs> anyone that knows tennis knows about Kalamazoo. Super Nats at the zoo. Yeah, yeah, they don't even, you know, you don't even have to say that it's the U.S. national everyone just calls it Kalamazoo yep. and they know what it is yep. so the, there was like this constant those guys were on the road a lot during the summer and that was mm-hmm. after the guys that had been lucky enough to play at the French and Wimbledon had come back from being in Europe during that time frame that put me in contact with that group of players and got a chance for me to develop relationships with those guys at the time I, I mean I think I probably know the answer to this one anyway but at the time do you know how special that group of players are or that environment is first of all I was really young I was in my late 20s mm-hmm. you know and I hadn't been around like the highest level of the game that much I mean at that point I was being competitive with and or beating a fair number of those guys right like, like in practice sets yep. and stuff like I have a practice set win over Pete Sampras <laughs> and a practice set win over Michael Chang you know yeah if, if those guys are listening they'll probably be like what I never yeah. lost a Brad Stein <laughs> it's a little bit harder, I think, when you're in that moment right then to recognize how good those guys were. It's funny because one of the guys that I thought was going to be an absolute shoe in to the top 100 at that time was a guy named Al Parker, who no one's heard of. Yep. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> so, but Al at that time, Al Parker was a kid out of Georgia. I think when I first met him, Al was 17. He was like six foot three, had a big serve, played really big off the ground, unbelievable two-handed backhand, ended up going to the University of Georgia and playing one at Georgia, and was, I mean, he was a really, really good player. He ended up not making it, you know, so, and that was like, you know, I thought for sure Al was going to be a shoe-in. Yep. So it's hard when you look at the other guys. You look at a guy like, I mean, take, for example, you know, Jim Courier, who I ended up working out with later on as a pro. You look at his mechanics a little bit, you know, and Jim had the funky backhand and yes. a little bit of the other stuff. Not so impressive straight away, right? Yes, like, exactly. Yeah. Hard to predict. And, and I, I look back on that, and I've always, within my career, I think because of that, I've always looked at it and said, it's hard to predict because you can't measure a lot of the intangibles at that point. Right. You know, like what, how committed Jim was to becoming a great player, his heart and his mental toughness 
all things that translated to part of you know why he became such a great player. I also think, I mean, I haven't been doing it as long as you have, but I also think, especially when you're starting coaching, you don't really know what you're looking for as much once you get into it and you do it for a while and you sort of start to see the kind of guys that are becoming successful and what they're doing, then you start to get an idea. I had a pretty good feeling that Tommy was going to be, his ranking was finally going to jump. I'd known him for a couple of years before that and you know he's hanging around 350 obviously he can play you watch him play and he moves great and you know really nice hands and hits the ball but then it was one day in I think he'd had a little bit of trouble over that summer yeah before you started working with him with the federation and everything and then uh, we were in New Haven and he had the full practice day and then he just went off to the gym by himself at the end of the day off to do his workout and then I thought that was a pretty good sign to me that he was probably ready to do something yeah. just because yeah. he was starting to take himself a bit more seriously it's funny I mean I think you know timing is such a an important factor in coaching also yeah and like you said I think my timing with Tommy was very lucky because he had gone through some periods where he was probably a little less than professional in his approach to things and he was kind of surviving and living on his talent as a player and, yep. his, and his athleticism and then all of a sudden you know he was in a position like you're saying I mean within I think probably about a year before I started working with Tommy he was outside like you said outside the top 300 and then within a year later he's in the top 100 and I think part of that was a renewed commitment on his part having seen his buddies especially you know Francis and Fritz Mackie and, as well and, and yeah. Riley Apelka and yeah. those guys cracking the top 100 and progressing up the rankings and doing better and I think it kind of you know was a little bit of a slap in the face for Tommy to recognize that he needed to be a little more committed to what he was doing and since I started with him I mean I was actually very surprised at how professional he was you yes know, warm-ups before matches or practices and, and cool downs uh, every time after the matches really dissecting what was going on within the matches and yeah. and, and you know I didn't realize how smart or you know the quality of like a tennis IQ that I felt like Tommy had which I realized like very early on because it yeah. was so obvious listening to him kind of dissect what had gone on in the matches that he played that he was really recognizing you know, the patterns of play and different things and how he could take advantage of other guys or how guys were hurting him and, and those kind of things. And that's, that's stuff that sometimes with players they don't recognize very well. They, they know how do they, like, produce their own game, but they don't necessarily know how to apply it to playing against other guys sometimes. Yeah, so that probably helps you figure out how to coach him and the kind of talking points you want to have. Yeah, absolutely. Okay, so you have this great junior squad, the USTA <laughs> squad. How do you get from coaching juniors, very good juniors, to coaching on the tour? Yeah, it, I mean, again, timing. I think a little bit lucky, you know, I was actually, I started coaching collegiately. I started coaching collegiate tennis. I was a head coach for five years at uh, Fresno State. Fresno State, okay. And even during that time when I was working with the, um, with the national team, I was uh, the assistant coach with, uh, with Fresno State prior to getting the head coaching job. So I spent time there, but I was working in the summers for the USTA. So I maintained that, those relationships with, uh, with all those top you know, prospects for the U.S. It's kind of funny. This is a very little-known fact. Pete Fisher, who's the famous guy that kind of built Pete Sampras' game uh, when, he yep. was, when he was a kid, mm-hmm. um, actually contacted me, and Pete was turning pro, and he asked me if I would be interested in traveling with and coaching Pete. Being the genius that I was, I said no. Turned it down. <laughs> because at the time, I think Pete had qualified for one tour event. Okay. You know, and, and hadn't really... I don't know what his ranking was. I didn't really... But, it, you know, I... How old was he? Um, I think he was... 
16 and a half, 17, something okay. like that. And Pete won his first US Open when he was 19. 18 and a half or 19, yeah. So, yeah, okay. So I, was, uh, <laughs> so I was really smart. I was really, really smart at the time. You know, but it was funny because I had, I had kind of just gotten into the collegiate position at Fresno State, and I was kind of bumped up a little bit within the hierarchy of the USTA. Yep. And so I felt a little bit comfortable in those situations. And Safe I, money, yeah, secure. And I didn't, I didn't yep. want to take the risk, and I, I honestly didn't really know the system particularly well at that time. I the did, ATP I, system or the USTA yeah, no, system? The, just pro coaching. Pro I, coaching, I, I yeah. Didn't, I didn't ask any questions about how many weeks is it going to be or what the pay was going to be or anything else right. about it. Kind of like, you know, like, I don't think I want to do that. Yeah. Because I've got these other things that are going on. I'm sitting in Fresno coaching my collegiate team and watching Pete progress as a player and kind of kicking myself in the head the whole time. And because, it goes fast for some of these young guys too, yeah, exactly. huh? <laughs> yeah. And also because for me, I had always wanted to be at the tour level because I felt like, you know, if I had been a, a basketball coach, ultimately I would have wanted to coach at the NBA level if I'd been a baseball coach I would have wanted to coach at, in major league baseball yeah and so I felt that coaching at the pro level in tennis was kind of the pinnacle of you know, part of it's for you it's internal yeah, you for, want to see how good you are exactly, right yeah exactly I was trying to you know I wanted to get to the top of the mountain for for myself yep here's an opportunity that presents itself and I turn it down and it turns out to be a pretty good opportunity it was, <laughs> not a bad one to have taken yeah that being said Pete did go through a few coaches early on maybe I wouldn't have survived who knows further down the road and I get a call from Tom Gullick who's you know the head of men's tennis for the USTA at that time mm-hmm. and he says that you know Jim Courier is uh, making a change in his coaching and that he's started to do some work already with Jose Higueras but Jose doesn't want to travel and they're looking for someone that will travel with him more full-time yep and I thought about it for about half a second okay. after having turned down the situation <laughs> with Pete a little bit different situation because Jim was ranked 28 in the world at the time okay so yeah. Pete again like I said when he when he asked me Pete was outside the top 300 or something like yep. that so I said yes we'll do it and I actually my first year working with Jim I was paid by the USTA but I was also I was coaching my collegiate team okay while I was still traveling with Jim some. Okay. I actually missed some of the college matches and my assistant coach covered some of the college matches. Right. Again, being the genius that I am, I also asked my athletic director at the end of that year if I could do one more year doubled up with Fresno State and Jim. <laughs> okay. Primarily because I was well, I had some guys on my team, on my collegiate team, that I really liked and they were going to be finishing their senior years and I really wanted to finish out their senior years. And what was Jim's ranking at that time? I mean, he was 25 or <laughs> 28 or something like okay, that. Okay, yeah, yeah. And I was like... I mean, thank God the athletic director was smart enough to say no yeah. to that because they didn't want to have me be like a part-time coach with them. But decent chance you end up losing both jobs trying to trying to do both maybe, of them. Yeah. Maybe, yeah. I didn't I didn't think about it that way. I mean, I, I maybe I was just so young, young, or young <laughs> to not realize that this wasn't a very smart idea. Yep. You know, but it, I mean, it was tough. I'll tell you that first year because I'd be on the road with Jim for two or three weeks, and I'd come back and. Very next day, I'd be on the courts, you know, with the college team. Like yeah. Coaching college tennis. You're burning the candle at yeah, both Yeah, there hands. wasn't a lot of rest yeah. time for me. Yeah. You know? Okay. So you start working with Jim, and Jim's working with Jose as well. Jose, for people that don't know, a legend within all tennis coaching. <laughs> How does that relationship work? Yeah, it was, you know, I, I didn't know Jose prior to that. Okay. So Jose didn't know me. Jose was based in Palm Springs, and I'm in Fresno, California. Yep. So I was about a five-hour drive. Mm. We came up. I started. I started with Jim in late 1990. So first season that we started working was 91, but we he was doing some of the off-season in Palm Springs. So I came down to Palm Springs and spent 
I don't know, a week or two down there with Jim and Jose. Jose had me out on the court, you know, right away feeding balls and hitting balls and doing other stuff with Jim. And then we all kind of sat down and Jose really mapped out what the plan was for the first six months or eight months and things that he really wanted Jim to improve on. Two primary things I always remember, they were obvious, was that he wanted a commitment from us to be working on Jim's slice backhand on a day-to-day basis. Okay, yep. And then also on the volleys. Volleys was a little bit of a secondary thing in comparison to the slice. But Jose recognized right away, and anyone that watched Jim play back then, again, Jim had such a funky, extreme grip on his backhand side that he really couldn't defend from the wide corner in the backhand side. Okay, yeah. The way his hands were on his racket, he couldn't extend his arms particularly far. Yep. So if the ball was really stretched away from him, he had a very difficult time trying to make generate any, kind of any speed. Yeah, yep. I mean, just couldn't make a very quality shot from that yep. position, so it would get him in trouble. And so at that time, the book on playing Jim was, you know, you can open the court a little bit, the forehand side, try and, and then back stretch the him to the backhand. Yeah. As soon as you get him to that side, a lot of times you would get a short ball. You could attack all the guys. Way more guys were attacking. You know the net back in those days and so if you made him have to pass off the backhand side he had a hard time that's the bottom line yeah and so jose recognized that right away and said you know we've got to find a way to give him the ability to defend on the backhand side give him an answer for this problem and in my mind you know I, i was already probably an advocate of the slice backhand anyway sure but but became a much bigger one after that, just recognizing that what Jose did in doing that, in my opinion, is what got Jim to be number one in the world. Yeah, well, back in those days, a lot of conditions more favorable to it as well, right? Lighter balls, faster courts, slice even more effective than what it is today. But but once he could defend on that side, it just gave him a chance to stay in the points more, potentially find a forehand again. And once he found a forehand, then he was obviously very, very difficult to deal with for guys. So he was all of a sudden, and he became very adept at making slices, like started using the slice not just to defend necessarily but to change pace sometimes mm-hmm. guys would try and attack him to the backhand side and he would dump the slice in front of them very good at that little play yep and then you know could run around right away to find a forehand to pass off of instead of having to pass off his backhand so all those things combined just gave him an opportunity to win that many more points in matches and that turned the tide for him all really. the difference yeah, yeah. and yeah. i think i i am a really really strong believer that developing the slice backhand for him is what gave him a chance and got him to number one really how old were you at this point 30 I started with Jim when I was 31. So then working with Jose, who's like a master coach, big reputation, big resume already. Yeah. Almost probably kind of like a school for you, right? Absolutely. I would list four mentors really that I look at as guys that had major, major effects on my coaching. And Jose is one of those. It's funny because the progression of those four people lead to Jose. Right. And Jose was the final one that, I mean, I learned so much from being around him. Jose is kind of funny because because he's, he's not a very public-oriented person. He doesn't like to be out. You he's know. like a recluse, right? Yes, he is a little bit of a recluse. <laughs> if, if you, you want know, to work with way. him, you've got to go to his place. Yes. He doesn't travel. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. Exactly. So it's, you know, a lot of people that are, unless you're very deeply involved in the game, like you and I or other coaches or players, right. a lot of people don't know who Jose Higares is. Yep. He is an absolute genius of a mind when it comes to tactics and strategy in tennis, and then he's a great mechanical. He is one of the greatest coaches I think if not the greatest coach in tennis over the course of the last 25 30 years sure, sure. okay know? like so it's certainly as long as I've been involved in the game I mean he was the creator of Michael Chang winning the French Open when the guy was what 16 and a half 17 years old 17 yep you know and um, so that alone 
you know, created like an aura with Jose. And that, and that was what kind of led Jim to wanting to work with Jose also. Yep. He's been involved with and, and was involved with then with the USTA more as a kind of an independent contractor. But he was available as a resource for players to go and work with him and do things with him. There were quite a few other guys. Jim actually made the commitment to move to Palm Springs to be closer to Wow, Jose. So, okay, big one. Yeah. yeah, so he moved from Florida where he'd been training his whole his whole life. Yeah. Once he committed to working with Jose, um, he moved to Palm Springs, got a place there, and so on his off weeks, he was working with Jose in Palm Springs, and then I was traveling with him, and Jose came to three of the four Grand Slams. He yeah. never went to Australia. Doesn't like the Australians, I don't think. I'm not sure. No, I'm just joking. <laughs> it's no, far. He just didn't it's wanna, far. He yeah. just didn't want to make the trip. You know? Yeah, yeah, yeah. He just didn't want to make the trip, but... So he came to the other three slams, and he came he came to the Indian Wells event because he lived in Palm Springs. Right. And and that was about it, you know, until Jim started making the Masters. He, then he, okay. Jose would go to the Masters. To the I, Masters. I, I didn't go to the Masters. So. Okay. You missed uh, out on the big ones. Yeah. No, yeah. just that one. Yeah. Yeah, so he did some limited traveling to those things, but he did all the training with Jim in the, in the off weeks. It was pre-cell phone, but we communicated quite regularly. Yeah. My, my phone bills from the hotels were pretty high sometimes. <laughs> Old school, yeah. yeah exactly. On the Dial up. Dial nine or yeah. zero if you're in Europe for the operator. There you go, yeah. Not rotary dial, right? You're at least past rotary no, dial. No, I think we were push button by Yeah, okay. But yeah, we communicated a lot, and Jose communicated with Jim directly also, and was you know he was setting a lot of the uh, the tactics for each match and those kind of things. And so yeah, that was an incredible education for me to be around that. Right. So you mentioned three or four mentors. Who are your mentors? How'd you get good? <laughs> How'd I get good? Yeah. I mean, a couple of them, I mentioned Greg Patton before. He, yep. He's like second in line. It's funny because like for me, just the way the progression worked out in my career as a tennis person, much less a coach. Right. So my the first one is a guy named Rich Anderson, who was my junior college coach. Yeah, which, okay. Which sounds a bit unimpressive in a way. Yep. But Rich Anderson was a very good player who played Wimbledon, U.S. Open, and at the time was coaching a top 50 U.S. player named uh, Eric Van Dillen. Okay. Played Davis Cup for the U.S., and he was also coaching a, a girl in the WTA tour named Peanut Louie. He was coaching at a junior college okay. called Kenyatta Junior College at that time. It's not too far from my house. I was living at home still with my parents. And you, and and you grew up in California, in right? In California. I grew up in Northern California, just south of San Francisco. Okay. So, so it, I mean, California is a bit of a tennis hotbed anyway. Yeah, so, yeah. yeah. Definitely, you know, I mean, yeah. phenomenal weather, and and uh, so so yeah. But Rich was Rich was just an absolutely amazing technical coach. The mechanics of teaching the game were unbelievable, and I needed that at that time. So. Um, if you made the top eight on the team, you got to work privately with him like twice a week. Okay. And which I did, and so he honed my game and changed some things in my game. And there were technical aspects of the way he taught me to play uh, mechanically that I then translated and used forever. Like literally to this day, there are still yep. things that I that I use from what I learned from him. Kind of your own spin yeah. on it, yeah, your own exactly. version you know, of and it. As the game has changed and evolved a little bit, obviously I'm talking about I was playing there back in the 70s, late 70s. But still certain things that, I, you know, that he just was, was great about. And then from him, that led me into Greg Patton. And Greg Patton was a guy that when I worked with that junior national team, I really learned from Greg that 
there was a lot more to coaching than just the technical or tactical aspects of tennis. Greg was a bit of a disciplinarian with that program because he was running the U.S. junior national team. And the presentation that those players needed to make and, and how they conducted themselves in tournaments was very important. Greg, I really learned from Greg that creating a better person with better ethics and better morals, I think, translates to being a better tennis player. Wow, yeah, okay. And, and that's something that I've always believed in, you know, is that if a guy makes the right choices off the court, then he has a tendency to make the right choices on the court and vice versa. It's a pretty important one to learn Absolutely. as early as you can, <laughs> yeah. but it's not necessarily the easiest one to learn, No, right? not at all. Because yeah. when you're confronting players about their conduct or their attitude, and especially when it's away from tennis, yeah. they tend to take that personally. Yeah. You know, as personal attacks. And you have to present that in a way where you're not necessarily attacking them personally. Yeah. But, but you are talking about personal issues. So it's a, it's a tricky gray area. Yeah. yeah. And it seems crazy, but it might come down to like, you know, how do you conduct yourself in a restaurant? You know, how do you talk to a waiter or a waitress? Sure. Um, yeah. But but those things were things that I definitely confronted with with players and, and how they were conducting themselves you know, mm-hmm. off the court as well as on the court. And I really learned that from Greg. And risky, too, when you're confronting effectively your boss, right? Yes, <laughs> yes. all the time. I mean, to this day, you know, I, I believe in developing character. And, yeah. and that's really what we're talking about is developing character. Character as a person both on and off the court. Sure. And um, and I really learned that from Greg. I saw Greg Greg was... And, you know, he, he had a better vehicle for it because he was the, the head coach of the U.S. Junior National Team. Yeah, so, so he's, he's we, got something the players want. Yeah, he's exactly. got the funding. He's yeah. got his job is safe already. Right. Yeah. yeah. And, and so, you know, if you weren't towing the line in that program, he had the ability to kick you off the team. Yeah. And that was big. You know, that was a really big deal. Sure. But I, but I did carry that into my collegiate coach. I got really um, a great experience as a collegiate coach because, again, that's the same position that he had almost. You know, you have the ability within collegiate coaching to bench yeah. your players or kick you them off the team. You've got scholarships. You're and in charge of, so, yeah, their yeah, funding. So, yeah. Exactly. So unlike the pros where, you know, you can try and <laughs> focus on those things and the guy can say, hey, screw you, I yeah. don't want to work with you anymore. Yeah. But, I, you know, to this day, I like to take a sense of pride in the fact that I, I don't back down on those kind of things. Yep. I, I've always told players, you know, there's only two things that I really ever get upset or mad about, you know, mm. that I'm really going to lay into you about, and that's conduct and attitude. Yep. You know, I mean, as long as you're trying as hard as you can try and your attitude is good and you're not screaming and yelling and acting like an idiot on the court and throwing rackets, players win matches, players lose matches. You can, Correct. You can accept that part. Yep. If you are acting like an idiot. It's hard to hold your head up high yes. when you walk off the and court. And in the end, yeah. we all know, I think as coaches, that behavior doesn't lend itself to playing your best tennis. And our job is to get them to play their best tennis. Correct. So, so we have to change that behavior also because we're trying to make them the best tennis players that we can make them. Right. So they, they go hand in hand for sure, you know. Yeah, sure. Okay. So back to Jim. How long were you with Jim? I call it Courier 1 and Courier 2. So, <laughs> okay. So I, I worked with Jim. You know, we started in that off season 1990, and we worked until about the middle of 1994. And then okay. I stopped. So that's, that's the golden period, right? Yeah, There's that is the golden period. Four Grand Slams, two Aussie, two French. Four Grand Slams and three other Grand Slam finals. Okay. So he made he made the finals of all four of the Grand Slams during okay. that period. At that time, 
time, he was one of the few guys in a long, long time that had actually even done that. Well, it was him and Edberg, right? Ed, yeah. Yeah. And then, and then Andre finally, you know, got the, he won the career all. Grand Slam. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, so, yeah, but that period of time, you know, we started in 91 in Jim's ranking and his progress started climbing rather quickly. Yep. He won in 91. He won the, the Sunshine Double, you know, which everyone's been talking okay. about recently. Yeah, John Isner um, in doubles this year. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. So, yeah, he won that. He won Indian Wells in Miami back-to-back. That put him into the top 10 for the first time. He went through a, a bit of a transition period in dealing with that success and had a little bit of a hard time. And we had a very uh, confrontational moment in Rome a couple of weeks before the French. And um, I think that was kind of a kind of a touchstone moment in his actually then winning the French in '91. Yeah. Um, so yeah, he won the French in '91, made the finals of the U.S. Open in '91. Did it feel like a risk for you to confront him at that time? Yeah, a little bit. He had a racket in his hand. I thought he was going to hit me with it. <laughs> Physical so, risk. Yeah. <laughs> um, that was you know he had lost like third round in Rome and wasn't very happy and he went out to the parking lot with a racket in his hand. I think the racket was, you know, about to take some seri- yeah. serious abuse. See its last days. And I went out there and it was part of that collegiate coaching mentality. I had just come from collegiate coaching. It was kind of this mentality. If he was one of my players, I would never let him get away with the way he had conducted himself on the court and stuff. So I went During out. the match? Yeah, during the match. Okay. And so I went out and I, you know, I called to him from a little ways away and he turned around and he actually said to me, like, not now. Like, I'm not going to be nice out yeah. here or something like that. And yeah, I was yeah. like, well, if not now, don't expect me to be around when you want to talk okay yeah and he kind of looked at me with this look of surprise that I would say something like that or you know whatever and uh, so I walked up to him and and we had a we had a big confrontational situation like almost nose to nose Jim would never back down like you could you could literally like I'm, I'm talking like you know within centimeters get like in his face and be yelling at him and he would never take a step back which you kind of almost expect from like from, the, Jim, from yeah of course. Well, from the big players as yeah. well like uh, pretty big egos yeah to be in the top hundred in the world even so yeah, exactly. okay I, it, it was funny because I, I say this you know knowing there was a time a number of years ago when I was running my little academy in, in Fresno and I was having a bit of a existential crisis of my own <laughs> you know wondering wondering about my own personal value and all this stuff and I, I sent a I sent a text to Jim and I said I said Jimbo did I make a difference in your ability to get to number one in the world and your career and he responded pretty quickly you know within like 10 minutes or something like one of the things that he said he goes absolutely 100% he said if you don't call me out in Rome chances are I never win the French in 91 okay and, pretty cool thing to hear yeah, so that came directly from him, you know, and I probably should have saved that text and taken a picture of it or something. And that's but, years later, right? Yeah. yeah, this was within like the last six years or something like that, you know. Okay. You know, it was funny because at the time, at that moment, I kind of needed that. I needed to hear that a little bit. You yeah, know, yeah like, sure. Like, okay, I made a difference. I think tour coaches kind of like players as well. Your stocks go up, your stocks yeah, go sure. down. You know, I think that moment was big. It was big for him and it was big for me, you know, and it created an environment with us where there was, there was always a degree of respect there with Jim, you know, because I was willing to make those kind of confrontational situations and, and create that. And, and Jim, to Jim's massive credit, he always made the right adjustments when you would confront him like that. Which is what you're hoping for at the end of the day, right? That's... Yeah, there's, I was just going to say, there's a, there's a coach in the NBA, former coach in the NBA, Don Nelson, who anybody that's an NBA fan will know Don Nelson was a great coach for a long time. Yep. And I heard him speak one time, and one of the things that he said, which just resonated with me so much, with all the players that I've coached, but in those moments with Jim also, was that he said that in, in every player and coach relationship at some point there's a situation where coach pushes and how the player reacts to that determines what direction your relationship goes correct yeah and i was like wow that is so 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 true yeah because if you push and the player 
maybe pushes back in a way where, you know, I don't want to hear that. I don't want to have to listen to that. And especially yeah. in our environment, not so much in a, in a team environment, sure. but in our environment where we are working one-on-one with players, if that player is so put off by what you've confronted him about, they have the ability to not want to work with you anymore. Yep. And even though you might be 100% correct in what you're saying to them, that creates a scenario where two things happen in our sport. One, you have a lot of coaches who aren't willing to confront players. Yes. <laughs> and, and two, you have a lot of players that stop working with coaches who are actually telling them the right things. The right things, yeah. So it's, it's tough sometimes within those scenarios. To Jim's credit, you know, over the course of time that I was with Jim, I mean, we had a number of confrontations over different things. I say all the time that I think that, and I got this from, again, from one of my mentors, from Greg Patton, that coaching is 80% confrontation. The confrontation doesn't always have to be confrontational, but if you're not confronting your players on what they're doing, how they're doing it, why they're doing it, you're probably not doing your job. Well, you're trying to challenge and push boundaries in some way, right? 100%. 100%. So some of that period early on with Jim, our confrontations were a little more confrontational at times. Right. You have to learn each other and how how to relate to each other. You have to understand that, you know, I was early 30s at the time and I had just come out of coaching collegiate tennis where it was a complete and total different know, energy it's a dictatorship yeah i mean and i was the dictator yeah so you could say and do whatever you wanted back in those days especially with college players yep um without having to worry about losing your job or anything you know and so i kind of brought that mentality into the coaching that i did with jim Mm-hmm. And so I was a little bit, I would say I'm much less confrontational now than I was back then. Not so much that I don't confront the issues, but that right. I have a tendency to be a little bit more relaxed in the approach sure. and the tone sure. that I use when I'm, when not, I'm dealing not with Not everything has to be done right just now. Yeah, yeah. I, don't, I don't drop as many F-bombs as I used to. It's probably good. <laughs> it's good for this show anyway. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> okay, so we get to 94. What's Jim's ranking? He had dropped to about eight in the world or something like that. Okay, so pretty successful time if you're dropping to eight in the world. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Okay, and then what happens? I had an option that presented itself to work with another top 10 player who was 19 at the time, I think, 19 or 20. I was desirous of that time as much as it had helped me in working with Jose. I was desirous of being in a scenario where I was in charge. Okay. And all the responsibility was put on me, either to make it work or not make it work. Yep. And so this this option presented itself to work with Andre Medvedev at that time. Sure. Um, and so we I sat down with Andre in Nice, France over dinner and we talked about a number of things and what he was looking for and what I was looking for and told him that if I was going to leave Jim, you know, I wanted this, this, this and this. Yep. Um, which had to do with number of weeks that I was traveling, what the pay was going to be, all this other stuff. And he said yes to everything. Literally just said yes to everything. I was kind of taken aback by the fact that he said yes to everything. <laughs> I imagine you're in a position now, you've coached the world number one, you can yeah. you can ask for pretty big things. Yeah. No, Certainly we, things you didn't dream about, probably Three, no, sure. three years before, right? For sure. Yeah. For sure. So he said yes, and I, I then approached Jose and Jim's agent first and told them about the situation, and they both said, man, sounds like a really great opportunity. I called Jim and talked to Jim, and it was funny because when I first talked to Jim, you know, he said the same thing. He said, wow, that's a great opportunity for you. I think it's a really great thing, blah, 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 all this other stuff. Yeah. And then for two years, he wouldn't talk to me. <laughs> okay, yeah, yeah. So it was, you know, and, and I think that's the competitor in Jim also. You know, I think he was pretty black and white. You either were part of his team or you weren't yep, part of his team and sure. at that point I had not I'd become not you, part of his team you'd elected to yeah, yes and so leave the team you know I would see Jim at the tournaments and say hello every day and he would kind of grunt walk, 
at me, <laughs> you know, and walk by. And and the thing that was funny too, a bit of an education for me, you know, I'd been with him for almost four and a half years at that point, and I just thought that that was the norm. You know, again, <laughs> again, being the genius that I am, you know, I thought that, that this is like it's a long like yeah, you, you stay you with got, players you got your for next a long five time, years don't set. You? Yeah. you know, I mean, it's like why would you get fired after like such a short period of time if you were with someone? I'm with Medvedev for literally about ten months or eleven months or something, and we which sp- is still actually by our standards a pretty reasonable it's it's not there's it's not a short been, time yeah. there's definitely been shorter ones yeah there, there's no doubt about it yeah but yeah so he and i split up after about 10 or 11 months and i i always remember too it's funny i, I actually flew to sydney from california and he was playing in the hotman cup in perth okay and we had kind of you know figured that they would go this far and so I would arrive on this day. It would probably be the same day he would get in. They did ended up doing better than we thought he was going to. Sure. So, so I spent a so couple, waiting days, a couple of days. Now we have cell phones. Yeah. You know, texting, <laughs> okay. trying to call him, trying to do it. No response. No yeah, response. Yeah, all right. Uh, this is not a good sign. Not the best, yeah. So he finally you know, comes into Sydney and, and we get together. And I'm like, hey, you know, I think we need to sit down and have a conversation about, you know, what's going on. And he's like, yeah, we definitely do. We go to his room and we spent a good hour and a half or so talking about a million things. He was actually very complimentary. Yep. You know, said that he felt like he he had learned a lot and that he was you know that he knew more about his game now than he did before blah 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 maybe he was just you know trying to trying to ease a blow <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> but he but at the same time you know he just said i just I just want to be on my own i don't i just don't want to have a coach right now you know getting on a flight and flying home it was a long flight for a short meeting the only thing that that made the blow a little bit easier was that i still had pretty significant financial chunk on my contract Okay. And I said to him during the meeting, like, you know, Andre, you're not giving me notice. You know, in the yeah. contract, it says that you have to give me 30 days notice before yeah. you can, like, terminate the contract. Yeah. And you're telling me that there's no cause. You're telling me I did a great job and yeah. everything else is great. Yeah. So I said, I think you owe me the rest of the contract. Yeah. And he actually just pulled out a checkbook and wrote me a check. Amazing. <laughs> so, <laughs> so. Amazing. It's it's a worry which, off your mind. You don't was, have to find a job next week, yeah, yeah, right? For a brief part of the, the contract that was left, I probably had as much as I was making like almost double what I was would have been making when I was coaching at Fresno State. I'll be okay for, <laughs> you know, for a little while yeah. at least. Then on top of that, I landed back at home. From the day after I landed at home, I get a call from Marcelo Rios's coach. Okay. And literally the day after I get home, and he says, you know, Marcelo's looking for a coach. Would you be interested? Man. <laughs> <laughs> I turned that down, by the way. Okay. So, because I think probably we should talk about at this point as well, like the emotional letdown you go through when you fin- oh, yeah, when you finish a job with a player too, right? Because, yeah. you, I mean, it's a little bit different to coaching team sports or whatever. You you have dinners with these guys. Yeah, like sure. You spend your life based around these guys. So if you're doing the job well, usually it's pretty close to your first thought when you wake up what do I have to do for this guy today what, what are we doing so it's it's a big part of like you're living for the job you yeah. to do this job well I think you it's it's your it's your lifestyle right yeah you're spending more time with your players probably than you do a lot of times with your significant other yeah so it know, feels so. like a breakup sometimes yeah, yeah, yeah it does I mean I was gonna say I think it definitely absolutely does and you you I think there, there's no way to not go through a period of time, however long it might be, whether it's a couple of days or a couple of weeks or a couple of months, you, you feel a bit like a failure. Yep. Like you failed in some way or another. You're asking, or else, what could, have I, yeah, what so could I have done player, different? Yes. Like, you know, the, player, the player would player still want me. Yes, yes, correct. He yeah. wouldn't have stopped with me yeah. otherwise. So you, you do go through that period. And it was funny, too, because I go back to that. Okay, so I get this call from Rios's agent, and I'm thinking to myself after I hang up with that and basically say, look, if he wants to come here to me and train for a couple of weeks, and we'll kind of develop a relationship and see because I don't know him from Adam at this point yeah 
and uh, and and stuff. But I'm not going to fly someplace right now. Yeah, I can show up and say like, "Hey, yeah. I'm your coach." Yeah, you know. So I didn't want to do that, and so in the end, I kind of turned that down, thinking, "Well, man, I just got an offer within 24 hours of like yeah. splitting up with." I'll I'll with take Andre. the one I'm, that comes along in two weeks when I'm, I'm not ready. Have a problem. <laughs> well, literally six months or eight months later, I still don't have a job. Yeah. Okay. I, I was I was at home, and at that point, I'm I'm working at a buddy's you know, junior development clinic at a club that was like close to my house, Yeah. you know, so, so it was a little bit frustrating from that standpoint, you know, thinking again, it was an education for me as a, still a relatively young coach. I mean, at that point I was 35 or 36 and I'd been on the tour full time really for about four and a half, five years. I, I had this kind of like fairy tale concept in my head that, <laughs> Amazing, that yeah. I was just going to go back on the tour. Oh, no problem. Be back out there, you know, yeah. as easy as can be. Yeah. When I find the player that I choose. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Yeah. Exactly. The First Serve is your home of tennis at thefirstserve.com.au. Log on to find out all the details of our live radio show, other podcasts, read weekly features by our team of writers, and follow us on social media, Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, TikTok, and subscribe to our YouTube channel. Sometimes needing new tyres can catch us by surprise. That's why tyre power gives you the power of zip pay and zip money. You can get what you need now, get back on the road safely and pay for it later. Terms and conditions apply. So visit tyrepower.com.au or call 13 91.